Hi, I'm Phil Kerner, the Tool and Die Guy, and this is The Journeyman. So here we go with uh, version two of The Journeyman. And uh, just to make sure we start off on the right foot here tonight, this program is being sponsored by Industrial Sales and Manufacturing right here in Erie, ismerie.com. Please check that website out. I really appreciate them uh, helping me out with telling these stories. So uh, as I said in the first broadcast, if you didn't hear the first one, just a minute about me. Again, I'm Phil Kerner. I'm the Tool and Die Guy. Been online uh, teaching uh, for about eight years now. January 2011, I started. And during that time, I recorded about 350 videos and also really enjoy being an advocate and a trainer uh, in this trade we all love. The purpose of The Journeyman, though, is to tell the stories of the guys who came before us. And, you know, if you're an older guy, you're going to love this. But if you're a younger guy, you should love this because the trades change a lot. And you know what? Um, I get it. You know, I run a CNC machine every day. Even though I'm a fog, final guy, uh, I do run a CNC machine. I use AutoCAD. I still have some great old tools because from my days as a mold maker, we didn't have a QC department, so we always had to check our own work. Uh, That was the standard, right? So back then, we bought our own tools. Well, today's program is kind of a special one, and this is going to be really interesting. I'm so grateful I was able to get a hold of this guy, and he was able to do this. Um, You know that barn at the beginning of every video I do? Uh, at the, my intro, there's a, a pencil sketch of a barn, and that's the original Kerner Tool and Die Company, and it was started in a barn. And uh, tonight's guest actually worked for the Kerner Tool and Die Company, and uh, started there as an apprentice in 1956. So, um, a couple things. Uh, what you're going to hear tonight, I didn't edit this out at all. This is a conversation between two toolmakers, uh, and there's nothing I could really cut. Uh, this guy likes to, uh, to tell his story, and I've, except for me interjecting once in a while and, and digging a little deeper, uh, a few things I just want to clear up. Uh, at the beginning of his interview, he uh, it starts off very funnily because he didn't realize when he called in to get recorded, I would sound like this, right, the FM voice, uh, and he didn't know who it was. You'll hear that at the beginning, but... You're going to hear him say he was from Northeast. Well, Northeast Pennsylvania is actually a town um, uh, d- just east of here. It's literally called Northeast Pennsylvania. And it's a big grape place. Uh, they do lots of, uh, that's where uh, Welch's Grape is. And, uh, a lot of wineries out there. So that's where he grew up and went to high school. So that, just to make sure you understand that. And uh, you're going to hear uh, me ask some personal questions. Now, it's interesting to note that this week, uh, May 16th, uh, my father, it was, it was his anniversary, he passed away. And that was in 1969, 50 years this week. You know, I was nine years old. I don't say that for sympathy. I just say, wow, you know, I went to the cemetery on, uh, I think it was Thursday last week, and uh, to pay homage to my father. And, uh, you know, uh, not having a dad. I had a good stepdad. My mother remarried a few years later. But, you know, it's not blood, you know. And uh, to have a dad, I just wonder how my life would have turned out. You know, when you, when you have that... Uh, that guy who really has your back, uh, the advice I might have gotten, who knows? We never know, right? But uh, anyways, the guy I'm going to interview tonight, his name is Dick Forbes, Mr. Richard Forbes. And uh, boy, he was a hell of a toolmaker. And uh, he taught me a lot. He taught me how to run a decal at Tetra Tool Company. And uh, interestingly enough, though, he did work at the Kerner Tool and Die Company. And uh, he is going to fill in a few backstories for me. So I'm sorry if he gets... A little personal, because I always want to know what it was like to work for not only my Uncle Ed, but my father. And I always knew my dad was wild and tight, and nothing he said, and I gave him full uh, permission to tell the truth. And he did, about working for my dad. And that was a different era in the 50s and 60s, you know, you, just a different era. But uh, Dick uh, was a, just a tremendous toolmaker. And uh, I approached his son a few uh weeks ago and said, do you think your dad might do this? Because, you know, some guys are like, "Eh, I don't want to be interviewed, right? But he did it. So we're going to just let this flow. Again, a conversation between, uh, uh, (laughs) I guess I'm the young guy in this one, nice, but an older mentor. And you're going to hear a lot about how the trade used to be. And uh, 
why don't we finish up and recap? Uh, this is two interviews in a row that something's come up that I, I want to talk to you about. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Curter Tool and Die Company, uh, his background, how he got started, what he did there. You're going to hear some amazing things, how they made their own ejector pins and some weird stuff they did back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, finally, uh, interestingly enough, uh, you know, uh, my uh, family trained Dick as a toolmaker, and eventually I would hire his son and uh, uh, train him, but Dick trained me, so it just goes full circle, at least it didn't here in Erie, Pennsylvania. So I hope you enjoy this. Again, these are the stories of these American craftsmen. I'm trying to catch them all before they leave us. Um, I'm a big believer in history, and I told a group I was speaking to the other night, if you don't like history, it's probably because you had a really bad history teacher, because history is fascinating. That's how we learn and, and, and pay uh, homage to the people that uh, came before us and the things they did and uh, how things used to be. I'm not saying they were better, but it's fascinating. So uh, without further ado, um, let's welcome into uh, the journeyman. Uh, again, one of the best toolmakers I ever had the pleasure of working with, uh, Mr. Dick Forbes. Mr. Forbes? Yes. Excellent. Um, you all set? You ready to get started? Sure. Well, I uh, really do appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I don't know if you've ever told uh, a lot about your history. And I know we worked together. Hard to believe it's been uh, 30 years since uh, we worked together. And uh, well, 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 what is your name? What is my name? <laughs> I'm Phil Kerner. Oh, oh, this is Phil. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not a problem. Okay. So anyway, you sounded a little you sounded a little bit different. That's, okay, you can hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you fine. All right. So uh just to get, restart here a little bit. Uh so we worked together it was about 30 years ago and uh yeah. we chatted a little bit about uh, about the, your career back then but we were busy working. So I uh, in looking back at my career, I mean you were a, a huge mentor for me uh cuz I learned a lot about mold making and of course I learned a lot about uh, Running a decal from you, and uh, okay. So I guess I'd like to uh, things I don't know, uh, Dick. Um, you went to school here in Erie. You went, where'd you go to high school at? Okay, well, okay. Let me start way back in the beginning. Sure. Okay, I grew up in Northeast. All right. I went to. I graduated from Northeast High School. Okay, then uh, I spent uh, most of the summer and in the fall working at the uh, fruit food fruit processing plants in uh, in Northeast. But in 1954, I had joined the Pennsylvania National Guard. And uh, early in 1956, for January, February, March, I went to school in Fort Knox, Kentucky. And I got back from Fort Knox, Kentucky. And of course, I'm in the, I'm in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard, which is the reserves. I have to have a day job, you know? So uh, I look, I went to a couple places and put applications in, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And so I went to the uh, Pennsylvania Employment Agency, which was on State Street. And I had gone there when I was in high school. And a bunch of us went up there, and we took these aptitude tests. And so I went there, and I said, I'm looking for a job. I'm not having any luck. And so they pulled up my results from my aptitude test, and uh, they said, well, we have a couple things we can send you on. We can send you to the uh, General Electric, and you can learn to be a machine operator, but we have this other thing here. Uh, Kerner Tool and Die is looking for somebody to do an apprenticeship, and they said, but they're looking for a veteran, and you're already in the military, and I don't know what their concerns are, so I had like an introductory card. So I decided, I talked to a couple of people and they said, well, they thought the tool and die apprenticeship would be better than going to the GE and learning how to run one, one machine, you know? Right, so right. Uh, I, I went out to Kerner Tool and Die on Reese Road and I was interviewed by Bob Goring. Now I never, I never uh, met Ed Kerner before I went to work there. Uh, I, I interviewed with Bob Goring and I said, uh, they said, you're looking for a veteran. I says, what are your concerns? And they said, well, our concern is you're going to be an apprentice. You're going to be halfway through your training and you're going to get drafted. And I says, well, I'm in the army national guard. I will not be drafted. 
And I said, uh, but the only way I would be taken away would be if the whole 28th Infantry Division was called to active duty. And I said, that's not likely to happen. And so they hired me. So I really never met Ed Kerner until <laughs> I, I worked for there for a week or so before I ever knew who Ed was, you know. Two, two, quick, questions. Was, two quick questions. What, yeah. year was, what year was that and how old were you? I was 19, it was 1956. I was 19 years old. Okay. Yeah, that's when I went to work at Current Tool and Die, and uh, uh, there, was, there was a house attached to the shop up there, and that's where Ed and Jenny and the girls were living. And I'd see this guy come into the shop every morning about a certain time and walk through and, and go into the office, and I had no idea who the hell that was, you know. And I asked somebody, I said, who's that guy that comes through there every morning? And he said, well, that's Ed Kerner. He owns the place, you know. <laughs> so... So that was that was my beginning at Kerner Tool and Die. And um, uh, looking back on in 1956, uh, Kerner Tool and Die only had one customer. That was Parker White Metal. Nice. They built die casting dies and they built powder metal dies. And that's all they did. And the only customer was Parker White Metal. And uh, looking back on it, uh, the way we were doing things, back then was very uh very rudimentary it was uh like uh there was no mold bases the uh the uh the a and the b side were both solid h13 they used uh commercial leader pins but uh they didn't use bushings you just had uh the h13 hardened with a hole in it and that really? was your that was your bushing you know wow. and uh <laughs> Uh, and they and then what they would do is they uh, they would make these uh, molds in you know, solid age 13 blocks and then they would uh, sample them while they were still soft yet and uh, if there was any corrections or things to be made they would make them and then they would sample them again and if the samples were okay then they would get the instructions to uh, to harden them so they would harden them well you know steel changes when you harden it and uh and so uh, naturally, uh, you put the leader pins in, and the damn thing ain't going to go together because things change. So what you would do, you'd you'd hone out the holes until the thing would go together, you know. <laughs> and that was, and actually, a, a year before I started there, they didn't even use commercial ejector pins. They made their own ejector pins. They had a, a thing called a heading block, and they would put a, it was like a two pieces of steel clamped together, and it had a bunch of holes. Uh, drilled right on the seam line, and then they had a 45-degree chamfer there, and you would clamp a piece of drill rod in there, and where the chamfer was, and you would hammer the hell out of it with a ball-peen hammer, and you made a head. <laughs> it was just nothing but a 45-degree wow. angle, you know? Wow. And then you'd, you'd file them off flush, and then they would take, uh, your dad was doing all the heat treating there, and he would take these, these, uh, these pieces of drill rod that had a chamfer head on the end of it and he would flame harden the first two inches and that was your ejector pin but Amazing. when i started working they were they were starting to use commercial ejector pins but a year before that they were making their own so it was uh and i uh the first 10 months or so i was there i was assigned to sharpening milling cutters and making uh special form cutters on the Cincinnati Monoset uh, tool you and know, cutter grinder. That's, I, I, that's I what went, I did for about, huh? I went through my, my apprenticeship at Anson's and I, I'll tell you, learning how to grind cutters, what a, what a lost art, but that's a great thing to learn, isn't it? Yeah. And I did that for almost a year. I did nothing but sharpen milling cutters and I made special cutters on the Cincinnati Monoset tool and cutter grinder. Right. And then, uh, Ed come out one day and he says, uh, I decided uh, you did this long enough. I'm going to put you over with uh, Ralph Hall in the powder metal to learn how to make powder metal dies. Now, I had an agreement that I signed, went through the state and everything for an apprenticeship, and I had to have so many hours on these all these different machines, you know. But that was completely ignored. I just did what you know what Ed Kerner wanted me to do, you know. Right, so. Right. I spent about a year, year and a half working with Ralph Hall on powder metal dies, and I learned how to do that. And uh, the die was made out of high-speed steel, and then the punches were made out of uh, 
Ohio Dyer or Olympic, and your father did all the heat treating. And they just had a little tiny furnace, and uh, these parts would fit in there, and he did all the heat treating, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I spent like a year and a half on that. And then uh, Ed come along one day, and he says, I think you did this long enough. He says, I'm going to move you up so you can uh, learn how to run uh, the deco. And so I spent uh, really the rest of my apprenticeship uh, working on the deco. With, with, and, uh, with Sam Schember, right? Yeah, and I never really did uh, much work on moles and, and dyes until after I spent my time with uh, Sam Schember, and then I started working on uh, on the uh, the moles and everything, you know. And uh, and uh, but I mean, I, I, you know, I learned a lot in the four years. Even though I didn't go by the prescribed schedule, I still learned a lot, you know. Well, and uh, and then I started working on the molds myself. I the first tool I ever made myself was a powder metal die and then I went on to start to work on the die casting dies and then by then they were kind of progressing along and they were starting to use uh, mold bases with hardened H13 inserts right but the, the mold bases that they had to have uh, the only company that was making mold bases at that time was DME and the mold bases they, that they had to have were uh, nothing that was in the DME stock catalog. They had to make their own mold bases. Mm -hmm. So we had to uh, acquire some more machinery then because we had to, you know, we had to have a, a horizontal mill to make these damn mold bases, you know? And uh, so Ed bought a used uh, Cincinnati horizontal mill with like a 18 inch diameter cutter on it with carbide inserts and that's what they'd square these blocks up on and everything and and then they uh and then about that time he uh he bought his first hydrotel and it was a small one and uh but they could cut pockets on that see and then uh but they did do some duplicating and uh they all they did was rough things in on the hydrotel we had to finish everything on a deco uh because uh Andy Brower was the guy that was running the hydrotail and he really didn't, there was nobody to teach him anything, you know, and nobody knew anything about a hydrotail. Uh, Ed Kerner worked at Parker White Metal and during the war he didn't get drafted because Parker White Metal said he was a hydrotail operator and they didn't even have a hydrotail. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of ironic, you know. So anyway, and then by that time, uh, current tool and die is kind of branching out. <clears throat> They're starting to do uh, die cast molds for uh, the Dollar Jarvis division of the National Lead Company. And they had a plant in Toledo and they had another plant in uh, Batavia, New York. And now we're starting to get into uh, die cast dies that, that are designed. Uh, before, we really didn't have any design. We mostly worked off of a part print right. and uh, right. we had a basic idea about what the hell we were doing, but uh, most of it was just working off of a part print and uh, they would put the parting line on there and, and these guys would figure it out. And uh, we spent a lot of time, a lot of time was consumed uh, doing uh, geometric and trigonometry uh, calculations. Well, let me talk. A lot of time was, let me ask you about that now. Back yeah. then, I was just talking about that the other night. Yeah, you, know, you guys are out there, you, no calculators. Were you even using a slide rule or no. just a trig book? No, no. We're, we're doing everything manually. Mm -hmm. And uh, Harold Shrek uh, was one of, the, one of the die makers there. And Harold was really sharp on mathematics. And uh, you, if you'd run into a problem, you could count on Harold to help you out, you know. And the calculations were very important because if you made a mistake in your trigonometry and you start to move forward, you're moving forward with an error, you know? Nice. That's why the math was so damned important because you had to do the problem, you had to check yourself and make sure that you're right because if you're gonna move forward with an error in your calculations, you're gonna get in trouble, you know? And so uh, the uh, as we moved along, the I think the first big breakthrough in in uh, tool making was uh, in around 1960 when we got our first EDM machine. Right. 
and uh, that opened up a whole new world of possibilities. We could do stuff that we could never do before, you know. And I know with plastic molds, they do a lot of inserting and everything, you know, to get these weird shapes. But in die-cast dies, you weren't allowed to do that, you know. You couldn't have all these separate pieces. Everything had to be one solid hunk of steel, you know. And so with the EDM coming along, that just made things, oh, so much easier. There's just so many things that we could do now that we could never do before, you know. And so I had just finished my apprenticeship when the first EDM come along. Now, and I looked at that and I thought, oh, my God, this is a wonder. This well, those, what yeah, you can do with those, this machine, those, you know. Those really, those really changed the industry. Hey, listen, before we get into the next step, though, um, as I said, for me, this is a good history lesson for me because, uh, you know, I was just nine when Dad and uh, Fritz and Eddie died, and then the, yeah. and the shop burned down in '74. So I'm always right. just to hear some stories about about the shop. It's selfish reasons now at my age, right? Tell people right. what it was like because um, I you remember Jack Curlin and he used to say, "Oh yeah, yeah." He used to say that was the coolest shop he ever worked at. That barn up on the hill. What, what was what was your feeling when you look back at that uh, at that shop up on Gospel Hill? Uh, what was that experience like to work there? That was very unique. Um, they had the it started out with an old barn and. Uh, when I went there, they had just added a small addition on, and there was an office out there, and they had a couple machines there and a restroom there, and that was it, uh, the extent of the addition they put on. And it wasn't until much later that they started adding on big time, you know, and uh, uh, so it was kind of a small operation, and it, kind of unique work, working in this old barn, you know. Uh, uh, you could see the places where the where the cows used to be and everything, you know, and that uh, <laughs> was just kind of different, you know. Was it warm during the winter, or did you guys freeze up there? Oh yeah, they had they had good heaters in there. <laughs> he put heaters in there. It was warm in there. Now, now, um, tell me, and you can be really honest with me, or I'm fine with whatever you have to say. So, tell me about my uncle Ed, Eddie Kerner. What was he like to work for? Uh, Ed could be okay but sometimes he could be kind of hard-nosed you know uh everything had to be his way uh he didn't uh uh you could get into a discussion with him you know but in the end it was going to be his way you know mm -hmm. uh you could present your argument to him and sometimes he would kind of change and go your way but he he was uh he was the uh one that uh made the final decisions on everything mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but was was he okay to work for did you like working for him oh yeah i didn't have any problem with that right no i never had any some people did but i never had any problem with them right. i had more trouble with your father than that's i did with the next, that's the next question fritz and again you're not going to hurt yeah. my feelings i you know i barely remember my dad because again i'm nine years old but i know my dad yeah. i know my dad was kind of wound tight so uh, tell me yeah. a little bit about what it was like to work for fritz Kerner. Well, the problem the problem with your dad was Ed expected him to be the foreman in the shop, but he also expected him to build tools too, and and that's kind of a tough road to hoe, you know, because naturally whatever he's working on is going to be his prime concern, you know. Everything else is going to fall by the wayside. He doesn't give a shit if. Uh, your job is getting behind. He wants to get his done, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he's going to kick you out of a machine and stuff like that because he wants his job in there, you know? And so it was, that was kind of difficult. And then uh, back when I was younger, I lived in Northeast. Sometimes, you know, I had the weather to deal with driving, driving into to Erie all the time to go to work. And sometimes it was late, and your father he he didn't have no time for people that were late. Right. And he he'd say, well, if you're going to be late, then don't bother coming in. And so a couple times I was late, and I didn't go to work. Well, then uh, Ed hears about this, and Eric Ed comes out and says, I don't give a damn what anybody told you. He said, if you're going to be late, come to work anyway. I don't care, you know. Right. So, so that kind of solved well, that know, problem. That, well, <laughs> definitely a different era back then. I mean, somebody told me. And oh, I yeah. Every, everything somebody, was different back then. 
somebody told me like if lunch ended at 1230, there was a buzzer that went off at 1225 just to remind you you had five minutes left. Is that <clears throat> or is that? Not- uh, yeah, that came in later days. So okay. that wasn't it wasn't like that in the beginning. All right. And now, uh, did, now did you stay? I know you ended up at Tetra. Uh, but did you stay at Kerner's right until the very end when when Eddie died and all that? Or, or, or oh, no? yeah. I was there for all – your father passed away, and then Ed passed away, and then uh, – uh, Which must have been uh, really weird, too, to see the foreman and the – Yeah, that was kind of strange because uh, in the six Harold, Hagel, Harold Hagel was trying to run the place, and he really wasn't qualified to do it. That he, That's not what his job was, you know. So he's trying to run the place and keep Virginia happy and everything, but it just it just wasn't work out working out. Well then, uh, Becky she was having a relationship with John Catherine Jr. Right. Then all of a sudden, uh, uh, the Parker the Parker group the Parkers formed a corporation with the intent of buying Kerner Tool and Die, and so Ginny knew she had to do something. And probably and just for, just, let me just clarify just for people listening that or might be listening. Ginny was my, my aunt. That was Eddie's wife. Right. Right. So she's in charge of the shop now. And, and, and right. And so she's know. in the quandary. She doesn't know what to do, you know? So she, she, uh, uh, the Parker, the Parker people wanted to buy the plant. And, and of course, Becky, her daughter had this relationship with John Kathman jr. So we go in one day and, and they announced that, John Caston Sr. is buying the plant. And he was a management guy from General Electric. Okay, so John becomes the owner. And uh, he uh, he was living in Lawrence Park at the time. But then his, uh, his son, uh, Dan, was living in the house where Ed and Jenny used to live, which was attached to the shop. And... Uh, I think it was 1974, we were supposed to have a shop picnic that day, and it was going to be over in the house where your your Uncle Ed lived, that A-frame house or whatever you want to call it that was next door. Well, I got a call early in the morning from somebody, and they said, there was a big fire at your shop last night. I hadn't heard that, you know, so I drove up there, and oh, my God, the place was in shambles, and uh uh, the barn part of it is what was destroyed. But years ago, after all these additions were put on, the insurance company told Ed he had to put this fire door where the uh, barn went into the improved area, you know, the newer the newer buildings. And so they put this fire door in there, and that's really what saved uh, the newer parts of the shop because when the heat became intense, the fire door closed. And that stopped the fire at that point. The fire never got out into the newer buildings. It was confined to the barn area, you know. And luckily, my all my tools and everything were in the newer part of the shop. The guys that were in the old barn part of the shop, which is all wood construction, I mean, they lost everything. Their tools, everything was just perished. They lost. They had no insurance coverage or anything, and, th- and that was their loss. There was no coverage on those tools at all. They had to start all over again and buy new tools. And back then, that was a big deal because guys today don't buy as many tools as they used to. Because you know, well, they they don't need to. Exactly. So, so, so you go up there and, and uh, are, what's the decision? Is the shop closing, or what? What are you guys are wondering if you even have a job anymore? Well, John wanted to keep the business going, and he so he still had the part of the shop that wasn't destroyed in the fire. So he's operating there. And then he's also operating in uh, Erie Dye Company out on West 12th Street by the airport. That was vacant. That was for sale. So uh, they worked out some kind of a deal where he could go out there and use that facility. Probably had to pay monthly rent on it or something. But he could use all the machinery in there. And then there was a couple of other locations where shop owners uh, offered for a couple of his employees to come out there and do stuff on their machines. So, uh, so he had it going for a while for probably for two or three months. And uh, 
But early on, he called us all together, and his son, Deke, read a letter from his father, and he terminated everybody. He said the numbers just weren't in it for him to keep going, and so he fired all of us, you know. So I started working the next day at Tetra Tools. Well, let's, let's think about this for a second. Back in, that, in 1974, what, what, what were we talking like 50, 60 toolmakers hitting the street that day? Oh yeah, we had like sixty employees, and they right. were all they were all terminated. Right. And, so what, uh, a, what a godsend that was, though, for a couple of the other companies in town, like Tetra Tool, right? Oh yeah. So I called uh, <clears throat> I called Amos Newman that night, and uh, I told him what happened, and I said, "I'm And of course, Amos worked at Kerner Tool and Die. And, right. And, Amos worked at Kerner Tool and Die, and Ralph Hall, the guy who taught you the power. Right. 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 And so. Uh, and so uh, I immediately called Amos and I told him I'm out of a job. I said he fired everybody. And so I started working the next day out at Tetra Tool. Well, then later on, after I was, these guys all scattered. A lot of them got jobs immediately, you know, somewhere else. Well, after a bit, John decided he could make a go of the business after all, you know. So he starts call. he's called me back, wants me to come back. I said, you fired me. Why the hell should I come back? I said, I got another job now. I'm staying here. Wow. And honest to God, he, he would call Amos Newman. There was like myself and Walter Gaber and Dallas Craig. We all went to work at Tetra. And John would call Amos and say, let's talk about whether my guys should be working for you or working for me. And Amos said, what the hell do you mean your guys? You fired everybody. They're not your people anymore. You fired them all. You told him it was the end, you know? And so none of us ever went back there, but some guys did. And so he limped along there for a year or so, and then he decided it wasn't going to work. And so he closed up everything, and those guys that went back, they were out of a job again. When did they decide to just rip the whole place down, and why did they do that? I I really don't know. I wasn't in on that decision. Uh, they ended up ripping the whole place down, and then John – and Harold Hagel, they started a used machinery business. Right, with the leftover equipment, right. <laughs> yeah, they're selling off all these equipment, and then they start buying more equipment, so they're in the used, used machinery business now. See, that's one part I never knew. I thought the whole place was in such bad shape, that's why they decided to rip it no, down. No, no, it wasn't. The, the newer parts of the building were salvaged because the fire door closed. It was yeah, probably pretty we stinky got, and pretty messy in there for a while, I bet. There a lot of soot. It was because we had a lot, well, there was a lot of smoke in there, you right. know. Before right. the fire door closed, we had a lot of smoke in there. And so the fluorescent lights were all covered with smoke film, and you could turn them on, and you hard to get any light, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> stuff yeah. like that, you know. But that, that stuff can be cleaned up, you know. But the machines were all intact. I mean, not, there wasn't any damage to them. I mean, the handles and that were kind of discolored from the smoke and everything, but there there was nothing wrong with the machines. They still functioned, you know, and all of our EDMs were in the newer part, and all of our hydrotels were in the newer part. All the decals were in the newer part. The whole powdered metal operation was in the newer part. Hmm. Amazing. Of course, our, our, our powdered metal operation really had ceased because right. when the EDMs come along, <clears throat> They have to have graphite electrodes, right? Okay, you have to do milling and grinding on these electrodes. We had no dust collection system. Right. And so the guys are trying to work on this damn stuff, and they're choking from all this crap in the air, you know, which is certainly not good for your health. And so uh, Ralph Hall and Bob Krause, they were the two main guys in the powder metal thing, you know, so they told Ed, hey, we're not working under these conditions. So they left. Mm-hmm. They went to work at Penn Erie. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, Tom Parker, one of the Parkers, he was in charge of the powdered metal division at Parker's. And so he knew that the powdered metal operation was Ralph Hall and Bob Krause. Without them, there's nothing, you know. Right. So Tom Parker starts sending all the powdered metal work out to Penn Erie because that's where Ralph and Bob are, see? Right. And then eventually Ralph and Bob and Amos started Tetra Tool. And that was that was pretty much uh, all powdered metal. See? So you, so you went to Tetra, that, 
you went to Tetra in 74, then right after the fire, then basically, right? Right, right. I started and there, they were, I started there in 81, so you'd been there about seven okay. years. And they yeah. were booming. They were booming for a long time. Now, were you ever able to retire from Tetra? Because I know they hit hard times eventually, too. Oh, yeah. I retired in uh, the end of 2001. Okay. Uh, I got to where uh, we were getting a lot of competition from China. You know that. Right, right. And uh, and so Tom came out one day and he he said, uh, I was like, I was getting like close to 64 years old then. And Tom come out and he said, uh, we're really getting hammered by China. He said, uh, price, he says, I can't even, uh, uh, the, their price is so low, I can't even buy the damn components. For That's what exactly right. You could, I, I, couldn't right. Afford, I couldn't afford to buy the mold base and the, and That's the right. design done. For what yeah. they do the whole thing for. Exactly right. And he says, uh, so you and John Satula, you guys are close to retiring. Uh, would you be willing to take a voluntary layoff? And he says, uh, I'll keep your health insurance up and everything. And I said, yeah. I'll, I, I mean, I didn't plan on retiring that early, but uh, I'll do the layoff thing. And then, but John told him no. And so uh, I, I took a lay, voluntary layoff. John kept working. Well, then Tom decided uh, he had to let John go. Mm. And he, he went to John and he says, he says, you're laid off. And he says, you know, he says, you're going to give me the same deal with the health insurance you did with Dick. And Tom says, no, I offered it to you and you threw it back in my face. Mm -hmm. So he says, you're on your own and you're laid off. So uh, I, I was laid off, but then every once in a while, Tom would call me back. Mm -hmm. I'd go back and work for a couple of weeks. And then uh, I'd be laid off again, you know. Right. And then uh, so I got, uh, let's see, I got laid off in August. <clears throat> and I had 26 weeks of unemployment. So I'd work a little bit and then I'd draw unemployment. Well, I, it got to be like uh, May of the following year. And uh, my claim ran out with unemployment. And I had to wait till August to fire, file another claim. And so I told Tom, I says, well, let me put this to you. I said, in June, I'm going to sign up for uh, unemployment or for uh, Social Security. And I said, I'll start drawing in July. And I said, I could work one week a month without jeopardizing my Social Security benefits. And I said, I'll work from July till the end of the year in December, and then I'm out. And I'll work one week a month, and uh, you can keep. Would you keep up my health insurance? And he said, Yeah. So you know, I got to the point where I hated to go in for that one week a month. I hated it. You know, I hated it. And then in the, at the end of the year, I was retired, and uh, my wife and I, and my my sister-in-law and her husband, we went to Florida for three months. January, February, and March, we spent down in Florida. In two, uh, January of 2002, and I've been going to Florida for the winter ever since then. <laughs> Good for you. Well, you know, I, up until that last year, you had probably never been laid off in your life, had you? No, I had never been laid off in my life. I worked from 1956 until uh, 2001. I had never been laid off in my life. And uh, and then as far as the unemployment compensation goes in the uh, – you know, like 26-week claim and all that crap. I found out afterwards because uh, I talked to the lady that run that that unemployment place downtown in State Street, and she said, you know, I'm surprised that nobody ever contacted you. She said, if you lost, if you were laid off because of Chinese competition, there was special benefits for you. Right. And I says, well, nobody ever told me that. Right. I says, I was in contact with your office and nobody ever told me that. Right. Well, let me ask you this now. All your time you spent in the trade, you've seen it a lot. You saw the, the first EDMs come in. Oh, yeah. Then you yeah. saw the calculators come in. Then we got the, the calculators. The calculators were a big deal. Uh, I got my first calculator in 1970, toward the end of 1970. What'd you, what'd you pay for it? I think I paid a hundred dollars for exactly it. That's right. <laughs> 1970. It was, it was pretty basic. Uh, it did, uh, 
the standard multiplying and dividing and adding and subtracting and everything, but it, it did have one neat feature on it, and that was it would extract square roots, and that was nice. Okay. Because sometimes in your trigonometry calculations, you had to extract square root, you know? Right. And that was a time-consuming process doing that manually, you know? So the calculator was a big boom. That really changed things. And then uh, later on in years, then the CNC uh, machine started to come into play. And that, it, I'm really curious at that point in time, when Tetra started getting their CNCs around 1984, 85 and running there, yeah. you've got almost 30 years in this trade with a true craftsman. What was your first impression of the CNC machines? I, I've just always been curious about that. Well, some, some of the people that were involved in these things in the beginning, uh, said that uh, these were eventually going to replace the duplicating process, which we relied on the duplicating process a lot because that was how we did a lot of our stuff because we had these real odd shapes. And this is where the pattern maker come into play because the pattern maker would make the wooden pattern of the finished product. And then they, the, the pattern maker would make the epoxy uh, masters off of that which were the reverse, which was what the mold was supposed to look like. And that's where the hydrotails and the decals came into play. Right. Because that's how we did these things. We had no other way to do it. There was no other way. Well, you know, the, I used and, to like to call that the 3D work. Yeah. Right. And, the, uh, and then the, uh, and you know, a lot of times when you're working with these shapes like that, in, instead of just like a geometric thing, it becomes more of an artistic thing, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, because you got certain parameters you got to work with here, and so there's a lot of blending and and stuff going on, fudging here and there in order to make this pattern, you know. And so, so the pattern maker uh, and the people that made the epoxy masters, they were the they were the ones that were uh, helping us with all these odd shapes that we had to do through duplicating on the hydrotails and the decals, you know. And the uh, when the CNC mills first come in, uh, they were pretty rudimentary. They 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 could only do certain things, you know. They couldn't get into this real complicated 3D work because the computers just they just weren't up at the speed at that time, you right. know. The computers right. that they had they weren't they weren't sophisticated enough to do that kind of stuff, you know. But but they you know they kept working on it, working on it, and finally finally it came to pass that they could do this stuff, you know. I'll bet you. I'll bet you. But by the time two thousand came around, one came around, you weren't running a decal too much anymore. Nope. Nope. Very little. Uh, mostly, all we did on the decals was engraving. <laughs> right. You know, I try to tell people all the time that was one of the greatest ways to learn how to build stuff was on a decal. You know. Um, yeah. Years later. Years later, I hired your son Kyle to work for me. Yeah. And I always thought that was really cool that you kind of worked for my dad and uncle. And then your son ended up working for me. It was really kind right. of cool. And, uh, you know, I put Kyle on the decal. I was teasing him the other night. I remember when you came to me and you said, would you consider hiring my son? And I remember I interviewed him. He was so quiet. He was so, yeah. so quiet. But I said, you yeah. know, he's, he's got the right last name here. So uh, let's, let's, let's give him a shot. And then, You know, I let him go. I, he, I, so I turned him loose on the decals, and uh, he was great. And he told me the other night, you know, because he, he ended up doing what you thought could never be done, right? A 3D programmer. And right, he does right. learning how to run those decals. When he looks at a job, he just knows how to cut it because he had done yeah. it by hand. He had done it by hand. Now he could just yeah, tell yeah. the machine what to do. And I agree with yeah, that. Yeah. Yep. Wow. And, you know, Kyle, that was kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Kyle was going to high school, and he never expressed any interest in what I was doing. And uh, so I didn't know what he was going to do, and he, he didn't want to go to college. And so I didn't know what was going to become of him, you know. Well, then uh, he graduated, and he said, uh, I would like to learn how to do what you do. And I says, well, it would have been nice if you would have decided that when you were in high school because you could have went to the Votech school, and you could have got into tool and die training there. So I says, well, let me let me make some calls. So. Uh, I called John Geisler. John John Geisler was running the uh, skill center. Uh, the yeah, the skill center up there, and so uh, I talked to him, 
And he says, yeah, we can put him in the program. He says, does he work? I says, yeah, he works part-time at uh, Ricardo's. And he says, well, we can get him through there without costing anything, but you got to keep an eye on how much money he's making. And if he gets close to this certain limit, then he's going to have to, to work less. So, because he can't go over to a certain amount or he's going to be in trouble on the grants, you know. So we kept an eye on that, and he completed the program uh, up there, and John said he did real good. And uh, and so that's when I approached you, because he needs to go somewhere for an apprenticeship, you know. I remember that and, uh, I remember that day you called and said, guy stop by and see you. And I had no idea why you were going to come over and see me that day. I had no idea that this was coming. It was very interesting, because I hadn't seen you in a few years, you know. Well, and I thought at the time that he probably would have – uh, more opportunity to learn working for you than he would be working for some other place where everything is going to be cut and dried and he's not going to have the op the real opportunity to to get the baptism in fire, you know? He really did. And, uh, he got a good baptism. Right, and so, yeah. yeah, so he went to work for you and he learned a lot there, see? And uh, he progressed a lot of faster than some of his counterparts at the skill center did that were in apprenticeships in other places, you know, mm -hmm. he progressed a lot faster. Well, I, I, I never held my apprentices back. If they could do it. Hey, you know what? Why not let them? I mean, it's cheap labor, right? So I got your son right. 10 hours, 12 hours a day on a decal and, and uh, he's doing a great job and you know, he's working as a, an apprentice wages. So it was good for the business too. And, you know, right. And, and really, uh, Ed Kerner, uh, he gave me a lot of opportunity too, because you know, once I started, once I finished my training on the deco and everything, I had a better grasp of what the hell was going on here, you know. Right. And I started you, building molds then, and I. Uh, you knew what a cavity and a core was, right? You knew what a cavity and a core was. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would uh, Ed would give me a mold to build, and he'd say, "Well, now let's talk about how we're going to do this," you know, and I would. I'd look it over for an hour or so, and I'd give him my ideas and how to proceed. And he said, well, that sounds like a way to go, you know. And so most of the time he agreed with me, you know. And and Ed always thought that I was I progressed a lot faster than some of his other apprentices, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I appreciated that, you know. That's awesome. Yeah, I always got along good with Ed, you know. Your father, not so much, but with Ed, I did get along okay. Well, my, my father, that wasn't his job to get along with the guys. I know that, you know. Uh, no, your father was kind of between a rock and a hard spot. Right. You I know, know that. I mean, I know that. I mean, he's, got a, he's supposed to be organizing everything and scheduling everything, but then Ed's making them build tools, too. And right. that wasn't fair. Right. He shouldn't have been put in that position, you know. Especially, especially running a 60-man shop, you know. <laughs> kind, right. Kind I mean, when, when your father passed away, then uh, – they made Bill and Joe foreman, and those guys didn't build tools. All they did was just manage, you know. So it took two guys so, to replace my dad, and they didn't have to build tools. Is that about? And they didn't uh, have to build tools, right? So we're, uh, you know, what the hell? <laughs> that's hard. That's hard to, then you wonder why my dad died when he was forty-eight. Sometimes, really. Yeah, I know. And then Ed, Ed wasn't. I mean, he was only like fifty-two when he passed away. Right, fifty-two, fifty-four. Now let me ask you this: yeah. big question. What'd you do with your tools? I know you had a nice set of tools. Did you still have? Did you, still uh, have them? Did you sell them? I still have a lot of them. I have sold some. Uh, I realized there really wasn't a market for these things at the point in time when I retired. But Kyle was working over at uh, Executool. Right. And they had a. They hired an apprentice. And this guy didn't have any tools at all. And uh, so I sold him some of my some of my tools. And I said, I told Kyle, I says, I'm not going to give them away. I said, I'll let the damn thing rot before I give them away. And so I sold, I sold him a set of e-blocks. And I sold him, uh, I had a nice set of uh, depth mics with a six-inch base. And I had rods all the way up to 12 inches, you know. And they were like new. I still had the wooden... I bought them when Starrett was putting stuff oh, in wooden sure. boxes, my, you know. My set, my set still, is still in the wooden box, absolutely. Yeah, and so I sold those items to that guy, and then Kyle took some of my stuff, but I still have a lot of it left. In the, it's in my Gerstner box down in the basement. <laughs> gotta, gotta, gotta love those Gerstner boxes. I still have both of my father's. Well, you know, I told, I told Kyle, we bought Gerstner uh, box for Kyle when he was in his apprenticeship. I forgot what we paid for it, but 
You know, nowadays the list price on a Gerstner box is around thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars. I right. I don't think an apprentice could afford to buy one today. Isn't that amazing? So, I don't know who they sell them to. <laughs> a couple. Now these are a couple corny questions, but uh, let me think about this one. What's the best advice you ever got? Did anybody really, uh, when you were working as a mold maker, tool maker, apprentice, uh, did anybody kind of put you under, take you under their wing, and give you a really good piece of advice? Uh, Nor Norb Kinsora. Uh, was a lot of help. Uh, he kind of helped me out a lot, and Sam Shember did too. I learned a lot from Sam too. Uh, those two guys, you know, and Ralph Hall. Ralph Hall was pretty sharp. I learned a lot from him. Ralph Hall just didn't talk much. He's a man of few words, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a quiet guy, but God, that guy was smart. Yeah, I know he was smart. He was a very smart. I mean, he designed he designed all those powder metal tools and. Uh, I don't know if you really know a lot about powdered metal. Uh, powdered metal, uh, what, what, uh, when, you, when you fill a powdered metal, the, the bottom punch would retract, and then the hopper would fill the, the cavity with powdered metal, see? And then the bottom punch would come down and press everything. Or you had to have an even fill ratio over all these different parts of this part, see? So you had to have these floating sections in the bottom punch. So when the punch was retracted, you got the correct fill ratio on all areas, you know. And uh, then when it compressed, the floating section would go back to its base, and then you would get the finished part, and everything was a, med uh, a uniform density. So that was kind of tricky. And, you know, Ralph Hall figured all that crap out on his own. Without an engineering department, right? Right. He didn't have any help from Parker's or anything. He figured all that out on his own. Yep. That's amazing. That's why I had a lot of respect for the guy. And he did all these designings on, uh, on a, uh, online piece of uh, white paper. <laughs> now, if you, if some kid came to you now, a nephew or grandson or whatever, and said, Hey, I'm thinking about being a toolmaker like you. What, what would you, what would you, what would you tell them? Uh, the make sure one, that's what, Make sure that's what you want to do. Uh, it's not the same today as it was when I started out, you know. When I started out, a tool and die maker was was considered a real craftsman. And they were because, you know, you, 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 you really had to do a lot of thinking about how you're going to do stuff because, uh, uh, you know, you have to figure out some tricky ways and how you can machine it, how you can do this, how you can do that. Uh, but nowadays, everything is all figured out by computers and things are all done by CNC machines. And they're, they're just uh, not the challenge uh, anymore is, is what they used to be, you know. I used to call this the Cadillac of trades. Would you agree? It was the Cadillac of trades at one time. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, well, you know, um, I'm going to leave you with this then. If, uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight. It's a really great story. And I really appreciate you filling in some family history for me. And, uh, but the one thing, I, I, I don't know if you know this story, but I'll leave you with this. Um, one night, my, uh, Freddie, now my brother Fred, uh, he passed away a few years ago. Yeah. We were chatting one day at one of our 4th of July parties or something. We were just, I don't know how it came up, but I said, you know, Freddie, you worked with all those guys up on Gospel Hill and, you know, Red Dog and I said, who was the best toolmaker you ever saw? He said, Dick Forbes. And you know what? <laughs> and you know what? I said, I was going to say the exact same thing. So we had both worked with yeah. you. That's how high our opinion of you really was, Dick. You were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always got along real good with Fred. I That really saddened me when he passed away. And I, re I really, I didn't know uh, how sick he was. Mm -hmm. And uh, after he passed away, I was talking to Jack. And Jack said, I went by Fred's house a few months before he died, and I saw Fred out there in the yard, so I stopped and talked to him. And he said, I was just shocked at how uh, Fred just didn't seem to be his old self, you no, know. And uh, so he, Jack says, I, I knew something was wrong, you know. He said, Freddie just wasn't Freddie, you know. It just, uh... but you know, it was amazing. Freddie. He worked in the, all he did was work in the EDMs and, you know, he'd wear a white shirt to work and I don't know how the hell he ever kept that clean. He wore a white shirt to work every day. <laughs> I, I've heard that story a thousand times. They said this guy would work with graphite and oil all day and not have a, a spot on. Yeah. And he, and he never got dirty. 
Amazing. I just all all I have to do is walk by dirt and it gets on me somehow. So I don't know. Yeah, I was just amazed that Fred could wear a white shirt to work and not get dirty. <laughs> well, Mr. Forbes, I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, once we get it all put together and recording, I'll make sure I get it to you. Okay. 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 I appreciate that. All right, Dick. You have a good night and thanks again. It was really, okay. really great. Okay. Take care. Right, bye bye. Bye bye. So I really hope you enjoyed that little trip down memory lane. Another. A great story from an American craftsman. Uh, Dick is now 83 years old, and uh, his, as you heard, his career started at Curtis Hull and I back in 1956. You know, uh, again, I told you at the beginning I'd be uh, getting a little family history there. I hope you uh, enjoyed that. It was really good for me to hear a little bit about my dad, and uh, I kind of knew what was going to happen there. I know my dad was a little tough on the guys, but uh, different era, right? So a little trivia for you. Um, if you go to the com and click on membership, and I did not do this on purpose. In fact, his son was giving me a hard time about this. But the, one of the pictures I use on my website is a, a photograph of uh, the staff at Kerner Tool and Die. It was about 1958. And if you go to the membership, you don't have to buy a membership, but uh, the top picture there, you'll see a bunch of guys in their aprons. And the guy, the young man on the far right, is Dick Forbes. And... Uh, that's him, and he's sitting next to the guy with the uh, black, jet black hair that was Sam Schember. And uh, if you've ever listened to any of my Deckel videos, uh, Sam Schember, back in the 60s, taught uh, Dick Forbes how to run a Deckel. And then uh, in the 80s, Dick Forbes would teach me how to uh, run a Deckel at Tetra Tool Company. And then when I started Kerner Tool and Die in 1991 and hired Dick's son, Kyle, I taught him how to run a decal. And uh, as you heard us talk about, uh, running a decal was a really great way to learn milling. And as uh, we'll talk to Kyle one of these days, and uh, you know, he went on to become a very, very good 3D programmer. And he said, you know, he always just got it because uh, back in the late 90s, we switched from uh, duplicating our 3D parts or um, injection molds to uh, 3D models, right, um, into the... Uh, uh, 3D cam, cam, uh, CAD CAM software, and Kyle was a natural fit because he had already learned how to work with 3D stuff in his head. He knew where to attack a part, how to start. You know, it, it just made sense to him. It's, he said he still uses that uh, decal training. You know, some gosh, uh, 30 years late, later uh, to to do his uh, 3D stuff. So, you know, I've said it before: learning the old ways never hurt. Right. So. Uh, a couple things uh, that came up in there. Uh, it was interesting hearing him talk about my dad doing the heat treating. And uh, I remember as a, as a young, young boy uh, on Saturday afternoons, uh, my dad would work till noon, man, sometimes around 3 o'clock. He'd say, hey, Philip, let's go up to the shop. And we go up there because I was always up for a ride with dad. He was a busy guy, right? And I'd watch him uh, uh, grab that uh, H13 steel. It was all wrapped in like a, a foil, a heavy-duty foil. And grab the tongs and pull that red hot stuff out of the oven. I can't remember back then. I think he used to dunk that in oil. I don't think that air cooled. I could be wrong there. Been a long time. <laughs> Sorry, 50 years. But, uh, you know, I'd like to dedicate tonight's program uh, to my father, uh, Fritz. And uh, this past Wednesday, May 16th, was 50 years since uh, my dad left us. So, uh, Fritz, I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing about uh, what the guys thought of you back then. Uh, they, they made you work hard. We get it. But, uh, your legacy lives on here at the Kerner Tool, at the, uh, the Kerner Tool and Die Company at the Tool and Die Guy. So uh, to learn more about me and my lessons and things I offer, the advocacy for the trade, and also um, the Family Legacy Project, please take the time, if you have a second, to uh, visit toolanddieguy.com. And uh, also, again, thank you to Industrial Sales and Manufacturing, ismeerie.com, for uh, helping me out putting this program together. It means a lot. So until then, we will find another craftsman somewhere who wants to tell their story. I'm Phil Kerner, the Toll and Die Guy, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Journeyman. I'm just a-